0: If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John, I serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood, and as Matt said, we are disappointed that we're not able to do baptisms today, uh, but we're also looking forward to the time when we can do that all together, uh, have all those baptisms together instead of uh, sort of piecing them together. Uh, It seems like uh, during these last number of weeks, uh, God is keeping us flexible. Uh, (laughs) With the amount of uh, COVID and sickness that's going around and Uh, We're not doing the baptism today, so the sermon that was supposed to be for next Sunday got pushed to this week, so we're all in the middle of trying to adjust to all this that's going on, and uh, we can trust Him in the midst of the chaos of that and in the midst of those changing plans. So let me uh, read our scripture passage for us this morning. It's two verses. It's Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, and you can find that on page 1783 in the blue Bible that you may find in front of you. I always joke that if the scripture passage is longer, that the sermon's not going to be any longer. Uh, This week, it goes the opposite way too, okay? Uh, So you don't get off the hook. The sermon's not shorter because the text is shorter. We're still going to fill out our time together. But let's look at these two verses together. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess this morning that we need you. As we look at this passage of Scripture, as we look at any passage of Scripture, Lord, we recognize that we, in our own strength, with our own capabilities, are not able to see or rightly understand what is in your word. And so we pray that you, as you regularly do, that you would meet us here in this place by the power and the presence of your Spirit, that you would illuminate what is in this passage for us to see clearly, that you would help us understand it, that you would help us to uh, see it and believe it and delight in it. And we pray that having done so, that it would change us and we would leave here different people than when we came. So help us, Lord, now as we look at this passage, give us grace. Let me ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in the first official week of uh, looking at the book of Philippians. Uh, we're in a sermon series called The Cross-Shaped Life. And we're looking at these two verses here today and you may be wondering how in the world are you going to get an entire sermon out of two verses? Well, it's possible, I promise. Uh, There's actually more here than we have time for. But as we look at this passage today, we're going to be thinking about the subject of identity. And it's a subject that is, in our specific cultural moment, uh, it's sort of an important thing right now. Uh, There's a lot going on surrounding the subject of identity. Uh, There's lots of perspectives and opinions about Identity just in general, and so it's important that we uh, think about these things, and it's important we think about them through the lens of what the Bible teaches. Now, the, uh, the cultural sort of um, fascination right now with identity is maybe something unique because of our specific cultural moment, but the subject of identity and the question of identity has been something that every single human being has had to wrestle with. There's never been a human who's lived, who's been exempt from having to think about the subject of identity and ask the big questions about, who am I? As human beings, we are incapable of creating a life apart from the question of identity. So whether you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus, or whether you are not yet a follower of Jesus, you're exploring Christianity, or you're not really sure where you stand with God, every single one of us answers the big questions about identity in some way. And the question is, is the way that we're answering those questions the best way? And so what we're going to do today is look at this passage of Scripture and see what it teaches us about our identity in Christ. And of course, this is not a comprehensive uh, list of things, but as we look at the passage, what we're going to see Paul highlighting here is two different aspects of our identity in Christ. Uh, the Bible talks about us being in Christ sort of as a broad category, but then it uses more specific language to, give, to, to help us understand, to give sort of flesh to what does that mean that we are in Christ? What does it mean that we have a new identity in Him? And so today we're going to be looking at two aspects of our identity in Christ. And the first one is this. The first thing is, in Christ we are saints. Paul addresses this letter to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Now, of course, you may, have, uh, you may be familiar with different translations of this, uh, such as the old King James Version, which says, to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus in the city of Philippi. And whether you translate it saints or God's holy people, uh, it still remains that that's language that's somewhat, uh, it's, it's kind of religious language. It's language that not many of us use in our sort of ordinary lives. Uh, but either case, whether you think about it as holy people, as uh, holiness, or in terms of being called saints, uh, it, sort of culturally, there's, uh, there's, there's an understanding about those words. And that it's that holy people or saints are people who are somehow, they're sort of more, uh, they're abnormally well-behaved. Let's put it that way. That's what a, a saint is. So you may hear someone say something like, oh my goodness, the guy, is, he's just a saint. Or if you do something really nice for someone that's kind of above and beyond, they may say something to you like, oh, thank you, thank you, you're, you're, you know, you're such a saint. And it's used to kind of refer to a group of people that are sort of uh, more well-behaved than the rest of us. It's, it's unusual that someone would be called a saint. And yet what we see here in this letter that Paul writes is that Paul addresses this not to a specific elite group of people. Paul's writing to a local church community in a little colony called Philippi, and he addresses them as God's holy people. He addresses them as saints. And so what we see is that this idea of being called a saint is not for some special elite class of people who are super spiritual, the ones who are kind of better than everybody else, the ones who are super committed to Jesus, the ones who are super obedient to God. They're the saints, and then there's the rest of us. No, the way that the Bible talks about saints, God's holy people, is that if you are in Christ Jesus, if you belong to him by faith, you are given the identity and the title and the status of someone who is a saint. You are one of God's holy people. And so what what does it mean to be called a holy person? What does it mean to be called a saint? Well, in the categories that the Bible uses... Something that is holy is, there, there's two sides to this. It's two sides of the same coin. To be holy means, on the one hand, that you are separate from, that you are distinct from. But on the other hand, holiness is not just being separate from, not just being distinct from. Holiness is also being set apart, distinct, for the purpose of being completely devoted to something else. So it's really a transfer. It's, you're not associated, you're not connected with these things, you're separate from these things and you are completely fully devoted to this other thing. So that's what holiness was in the language of the Bible. And so what this means for us, being called saints, what that reminds us of is that we are people who are separate. We're people who are set apart, as the Bible would say. So there's There's the beliefs and the values and the practices of our old way of life that we are no longer associated with, we're no longer connected with. We say, you know, there's a clean break that we're making from that old life that we had. So there's an aspect of we are separate from, we are separated from, certainly, but then there's the aspect on the other side of we're separated from those things, from that old way of life, so that we can be fully and completely devoted to God. We belong to Him, in other words. And that's what it means to be holy, that's what it means to be a saint, is that we are separate from, separated from, distinct from the sin and the practices and the evil that existed in our old life, and we're given a new life, and we are now completely and fully devoted to God. So that's what it means that we are saints in Christ Jesus, but Paul tells us not only that we're saints, he also tells us that we are slaves, The letter opens with Paul saying, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, this is the Apostle Paul writing to this little church community in Philippi. He's writing with his ministry associate, Timothy, and they identify themselves at the very beginning of this letter as servants. And most of our English translations, as does the New International Version here, uh, renders this word servants. The original Greek word here is a word that more literally translated means slaves. And I think it's important that we kind of just sit with how uncomfortable that is, because it is uncomfortable for us. Especially because of the history of slavery in our country, being called a slave, anywhere in the Bible that talks about slavery can make us feel uh, somewhat uncomfortable, we kind of want to bristle, we want to push it away, we want to use different language. And I think it's important that we sort of just sit with this. Because I think Paul uses language of slavery for a specific purpose, and we can lose sight of that if we sort of just try and find a different way to say this. So I think what Paul is highlighting by using the language of slavery here is he's, he's drawing out, he's highlighting an aspect of first century slavery to tell us something about his relationship with God, and that is the aspect of ownership, What Paul is saying is, I am a slave of Christ Jesus. I belong to him. He owns me. He is my master. He is my Lord. He owns me. Everything about who I am is completely at his disposal. Everything. I belong to him. And interestingly, when Paul talks about Christ as his Lord or his master, this is the same language that is given to us to talk about God as well. So we know that Paul is not the only one in scripture who refers to himself or who talks about himself as a slave of Christ. This is an identity that belongs to Paul, but it also belongs to us because the same Lord, the same uh, master of Paul is also our master and he's also our Lord too. So we, like Paul, can refer to ourselves with this identity as slaves. And I think, it's, I think it's interesting. It's worth just pausing to notice how Paul here in this passage, he embraces his identity as a slave, as a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, nowhere when Paul talks about being a slave, either here or anywhere else, do you ever hear him talking about that in a way that uh, feels like he kind of begrudges that? He never talks about it in really uh, sort of a negative way. Paul actually embraces his identity as a slave of Christ. Now, think about how Paul could have addressed this letter. In others of Paul's letters, he, he wrote to the church at so-and-so, and he identified himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He could have put himself in a position of authority over them. But rather, what he does is he takes a position of humility and identifies himself as a slave, and instead of the apostle writing to the servants or the slaves in Philippi, Paul identifies himself as a servant, as a slave, who's writing to God's holy people who are in this city. So there's something about Paul. Paul wants to. He gladly embraces this identity he has as a slave of Christ. Now, this, in some ways, doesn't make a whole lot of sense because even in first century culture, slaves were lower class. Slaves were uh, the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, Okay? Uh, it was not typically a uh, a dignifying thing to be given the status as a slave nobody aspired to be a slave no no child grew up saying when i grow up i want to be a slave nobody thought that way and yet paul here embraces this identity as a slave he's not ashamed of calling himself a slave or a servant Christ Jesus. And that is because his identity as a slave, Paul doesn't view that identity as something that's dehumanizing. Every other kind of slavery is dehumanizing. But when Paul talks about himself as a slave, he doesn't talk about it in such a way that you get the sense he thinks it's demoralizing or it's demeaning or it's dishonoring or it's shameful for him to be called a slave. No, what we see is Paul takes up this identity as a slave. And to Paul, it is a Dignifying thing for him to call himself a slave. His identity as a slave of Christ was for him a source of dignity. And that's because his identity mirrored that of the identity of Jesus. So later in chapter two, Paul writes about Jesus saying that he was in very nature God. He did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant. And it's the same word there for slave. So Paul does not view his being called a slave of Christ, something that is dehumanizing. He views it as a source of dignity because he gets to be identified with the person of Jesus who took on this role as a servant, who took on that same role as a slave. And so this this, this concept of the servant or the slave, this is in some ways at the very heart of God's rescue plan. Jesus himself took on the very nature of a slave. And so for him, this is not demoralizing or demeaning. Now, I think this is hard for us in our specific, uh, in, in modern Western culture to kind of just wrap our minds around the fact that someone could be, someone could embrace their identity as a slave. Someone could view that as a dignifying thing in any way, shape, or form. Part of that's because of the history in our country. And part of that is because we live in a society that so highly values freedom and autonomy that to be told that somebody else owns you is just by nature to us, it feels repulsive. Not just that someone's in authority over you, but the fact that somebody else owns you, we just naturally buck against that. But again, Paul views this as a source of dignity and as a source of honor to be called a slave of Christ. And I think that for us, we will gladly embrace that aspect of our identity, that we are like Paul, slaves. We are servants of Christ. We will gladly embrace that part of our identity, but only when we see what kind of master he is, because I think that's the key to understanding and unlocking this whole thing. It's not good news to be someone's slave if the person who's your master is domineering, if that person is mean, if that person doesn't have your best interest in mind. We don't like being under someone's authority, typically, and we don't have really good examples. We can't point to a person who's like, hey, this person is the example of what it looks like for an earthly human leader to use all of their authority, all of their power, and only for other people's good. We don't have experiences of human leaders who are like that. We don't have experiences of leaders that are good and and true and just and wise in all things. And so for us to think about being under someone else's authority and owned by someone, it's sort of just, we don't like being in that space. We don't like thinking about that. But when we recognize what kind of master he is, then we will gladly embrace that position. I go back to Philippians chapter 2, which we're going to look at in detail in uh, the weeks to come. But Paul says this about Jesus, being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Paul's saying, I am a slave of Christ Jesus, and and, and here's what kind of master he is. This is, Jesus is God himself, who is the creator and sustainer of all things. He's the one who has complete authority and lordship over all of creation. He owns everything. And instead of using his power to crush us, he took on the form of a servant. He took on human flesh and accompanied us in our humanity. He became a servant, and he served us. He gave himself over to death so that we could be made alive, that's what kind of master he is. And when we see that, when our hearts are are, are gripped by the love and the generosity and the grace and the humility of God to do that for us, all of a sudden being called a slave of Christ, calling him our master, calling him our Lord is not something that, that makes us bristle anymore. It's an identity that we gladly embrace when we see what kind of master he is. So these are the two aspects of our identity that Paul lays out here for us, that we are in Christ Jesus, we are saints, and we are slaves. And both of them sort of have this sort of underlying current of we belong to him. And I think uh, it's important for us to recognize not only that we belong to him, I think it's equally important for us to recognize that we do not belong to ourselves. And here's why I think that for us right now, specifically sort of boots on the ground in in our society, here's why I think this is uh, particularly helpful, and relevant for us. I've been reading a book by Alan Alan Noble called You Are Not Your Own. And he talks about some of these ideas in here, so I want to give credit where credit is due for that. But we're a society that highly values freedom. And we are indeed, we're we're free people. Uh, Even in the midst of COVID lockdowns and restrictions and things like this, even in the midst of that, uh, we are still unbelievably free. Uh, we have incredible freedom of mobility, freedom of choice, freedom of wealth, freedom of opportunity. We have unbelievable amount of resources at our disposal. We are people who are unbelievably free. And we're, we live in a culture that gives us the, the freedom and the license to do basically whatever we want. So we're free But on the other hand, we're not exactly as free as maybe we think we are. Have you ever gone to the grocery store and gone down the cereal aisle and tried to choose what cereal to buy? And there's like 80 different brands of cereal and you're like, okay, do I get the store brand? Do I get the name brand? Do I get the stuff in the bag? Do I get the stuff in the box? Do I get the family size? Do I get the jumbo size? And all of a sudden, you you realize how difficult it is. There's an unbelievable amount of freedom to choose whatever cereal you want. And yet you kind of sit there and you're like, it takes me 10 minutes. And i got to make 50 decisions to buy a box of cereal. And in some ways, it's great. It's wonderful. And in other ways, it's not really all that great. (laughs) Uh, In some ways, it would be better if we had less freedom and less choices. And take that one decision and multiply that over an entire life. Have you ever found yourself on like a two-hour expedition uh, after you looked up one thing on Amazon to buy it? You look it up on Amazon, you're like, hey, I need this one thing, and then all of a sudden you're like, okay, there's like 40 different brands, and I got to read all the reviews, and then I'm confused because most of the reviews say it's great. Others of the reviews say you're a complete fool if you buy this. And then you start looking at, okay, well, I got to look up uh, YouTube videos on some customer reviews of this, and I got to... And all of a sudden, it's like you go to buy one thing, and you end up down this trail of you just wasted half of an evening on something that should have been a very simple thing to purchase. And it's an example of all the freedom, all of the opportunity, all of the resources. There's an incredible amount of freedom, but it does come at a cost. There's freedom. Yes, we are free, but at the same time... We live in a society where we have more resources, more opportunities, more mobility, more wealth than at almost any time in the history of the world, and yet we feel helpless, and we feel hopeless, and we feel despondent. And it's not that some people feel like they need, uh, feel like they get burnout from an extended period of like overwork. People feel burned out from ordinary life. And yes, we're free, and antidepressants are the number one prescribed medication in our country. Whatever we're doing isn't working. Yes, we're free, and at the same time, we find ourselves constantly medicating our lives. Scrolling mindlessly through social media, we can medicate through video games, through binge-watching Netflix or whatever TV show it is you want to watch or YouTube videos. We can medicate through the use of drugs or alcohol or pornography. You can medicate through all kinds of different things. And so, yes, we're free, but we're also depressed, we're despondent, we're helpless, we're hopeless, and we're addicted. And so whatever it is that we're doing as a society, whatever all this freedom is that we supposedly have, there are unintended consequences of it. And I think here's, here's where it, it, the rubber meets the road. And this is one of the concepts that he br- uh, brought up in this book that I thought was just right, hits the nail on the head, is he kind of traces all of this back to, uh, he traces it back to a belief that we have as a society and a belief that is constantly communicated to us by the culture around us. And that is the belief that you are your own. You belong to yourself. Nobody else has the right to tell you who you are. Nobody else has the right to ascribe an identity to you. That is only for you. And so what that means is if we belong to ourselves only, that means that we are left with the impossible task of generating and constantly creating an identity for ourselves. We're responsible for looking deep down inside of ourselves and finding who we truly are and then expressing it and then expressing it more and expressing it more, because that's what we have to do, is we have to create that identity and then continually express it and maintain that. Listen to how how he puts it. I'm just going to read you one brief little excerpt here. He says, on the one hand, there's the pull of autonomy. I am my own. Only I can define myself. It doesn't matter how people see me. Only how I see myself. But on the other hand... There's a pull for recognition that is inherent as a part of identity. People must acknowledge me for who I am and see how I desire to be seen. No one has the right to define me, but in order to have an identity, I need to I need them to see and affirm me. And in order to get people to see me, I need to express myself a lot. And the terrifying thing is that everyone else in society is doing the exact same thing. And so this is the situation we find ourselves in, sort of culturally is there's this, this tension of, no, I, I belong to myself, I get to create my own identity, no one gets to tell me who I am, and yet I'm desperate for other people to see who I am and affirm that, and recognize that. And they have to affirm who I am as a person. We, our identity is ours to create, and yet we're so desperate to continue to uh, do things to, to promote that identity, and It's exhausting. Something is not working. There's unintended consequences to the amount of freedom we have. We have the most unbelievable amount of wealth and resources at our disposal. And you take the incredible amount of resources we have, and you couple that with you must create your own identity. And that's an exhausting, overwhelming thing. To be told, here's all these resources, you belong to yourself, now figure out a way to create and craft and express and continually express your identity. It's an exhausting thing and it leaves us feeling broken and helpless, which is why we are continually more and more, this is across generations, but especially among the younger generation, continually addicted and more and more on antidepressants and things like this because we, we have these resources and we have one life, so don't screw it up. And we're asked to to generate and to create an identity like this. And the reason this doesn't work is because this whole thing is built on a lie. The lie that it's built upon is you belong to yourself. And the good news of what the Bible says to us is that we do not belong to ourselves. We belong to God. And so what that means is that in Christ... We've been given a new identity, which means we don't have to continually strive anymore. We don't have to live under the pressure and under the weight of creating and maintaining and promoting the identity that we have. We don't have to live under the weight of that anymore. In Christ, our identity is given to us. We don't earn it. We don't do anything to keep it or maintain it. We are just given an identity part of the identity that we're given here is we are saints, we're God's holy people. But also, we're told in scripture other aspects of that identity that we are beloved sons and daughters, we are loved, we are forgiven. We're all of those things in Christ, and so we don't have to strive. We don't have to generate an identity on our own. And so this is the good news as we think about as we think about Paul here and these uh, the ways that he expresses our identity in Christ as slaves and as saints. This is all pointing to the bigger good news that in in Jesus, we don't have to create an identity for ourselves. In Jesus, we have been given an identity. And so the response that we have to that then is we simply trust him. We simply believe the good news. We give up the fight to create an identity of our own, and we embrace the identity that he has given us by faith. Each week, we come to the communion table, And part of what we do is we remember and we celebrate the good news that Jesus took on human flesh, he lived as a servant, he suffered and he died for us so that we could be brought into the family of God, so that we could be given a brand new identity that's not earned, it's not maintained by us, we just simply embrace it. And of course, we continue to live into that identity for the rest of our lives in different ways, but we are given an identity by Jesus His work is finished, and as we come forward and receive the elements, we are reminded that His work is finished, and that the identity that we have, we don't have to maintain it. We don't have to create it. It's been given to us, and so we remember and celebrate that here today. I invite you as we come to the communion table, would you bow for a moment of silent confession and reflection? Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. We've sinned against you by the things that we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, we ask that you would forgive what we have been, that you would help us amend what we are and that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And all God's people said, amen.